0: All right, everybody, welcome to School of Ministry, our first intensive class. We had the introduction. This is the first intensive God-centered living. Uh, Jonas is going to be handing out the syllabus, the one for this class and the one for the class to come. We will talk uh, at the end of either tonight if we have time somebody remind me when we get to the end we'll talk about the end of the class to come Um, on the syllabus for this one uh, hopefully uh, those of you who are taking the class have read through Desiring God those of you who are auditing the class uh, obviously you're welcome to just sit in but I would strongly (laughs) encourage uh, reading John Piper's Desiring God Uh, very helpful and Formative in your own thoughts and feelings and understanding. Uh, I'm going to pass around the sign-in sheet. So I know you guys have already done that. Let's make sure everybody in here signs in so we know that you're here. If you look, grab the, the syllabus for this class, God-Centered Living, and flip it over to the back page. Um, those of you who are, are going through the class should have already submitted your paper, summarizing, uh, journal keeping, and, oh, actually, no, that, that one's coming. The, uh, the one you should have already submitted is the, uh, the one from last time, talking about calling and your personal testimony. Uh, is there anybody who is intending to do that and hasn't done it yet? Okay. So those of you who have done it, uh, I'm actually going to change directions on this just a little bit. And let's post everything on Teams that's on there. Uh, I love the peer review stuff that I've seen just a little bit happening of people reading through others. Uh, And one of the things that that kind of sparked that in my head was reading through, especially some of your testimonies and the the call on your life, uh, some of the things that you've struggled with and wrestled with. Uh, I thought, man, everybody needs to hear this. This is such good stuff. So if you submitted it, I know... Uh, like I think Tim had uh, emailed it to me following the instructions. Uh, Josiah had done that as well. If you guys want to go ahead and post them to teams, uh, give other people an opportunity to read, it, I think that would be fantastic so
1: Good. Or you can
0: just see him on the, on the post tab. Yep. And if you're confused about where to stick them, uh, get a hold of Josiah. He'll point you in the right direction. Indeed. He'll be our team's expert. Good. Uh, so uh, following this class, we're meeting tonight. We're meeting Thursday. We're meeting Saturday. Uh, the following two days, we are going to blitz through as fast as we can. Uh, there is... Uh, There's a church activity that's going on Saturday that uh, I had accidentally committed our boat to be helping with. And so I'm going to try. We're going to try and cruise tonight and Thursday and then Saturday morning. Hopefully get you out early on Saturday so that I can help facilitate that event that's going on.
2: Yeah.
0: We could start an hour earlier on Saturday. Yeah, let's see how that's part of what i thought let's see how we do uh tonight and thursday and if if we're doing good enough we'll keep it as is if we got a ways to go we'll 5 a.m like show of hands yes all right good all right so just just to highlight all papers going to be submitted on teams that are on here uh Make sure you actually read this through. I know last time we had several questions from people, and then in answering them, it was mostly because they hadn't actually read the syllabus and figured out what they were supposed to do. So make sure that you check that out and read it. All right, lesson one. Introduction to Christian Hedonism. Lesson one is... It feels like, for the most part, a mini-book review of uh, Desiring God, so we'll, we'll try and zip through this pretty quick. Uh, Christian hedonism, a definition for that, pursuing your own pleasure in God is essential to the Christian life. Uh, Piper's rather famous quote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Is that okay? Is it okay to say our motivation for following God, for uh, a desiring God, a desire to know God, uh, is motivated by our own pleasure. Is that, is that selfish? Is that sinful? Is that right?
3: With the modifier in Him. What's that? With the modifier in Him.
0: Yeah, yeah, pursuing our joy in Him. Any other thoughts on that? That's actually the big thing that changes, is our desire, that we've been given a new heart, we've been given the mind of Christ. What we want is something different. What we delight in is something different. Uh, so here, here's an example. Imagine two volunteers at a soup kitchen. By the way, in this story, neither one's the bad guy. Okay? Uh, two volunteers at a soup kitchen who are asked, why do you volunteer your time? Right, here's answer number one. I just keep coming back because it brings me such joy to serve these people. When I see the smile on their faces, when they take a bite of hot food, I feel a surge of happiness. I guess I just really enjoy working here. And number two, I know that a lot of people have fewer resources than I do and that it is right to share with those who don't have as much. Working here isn't all that glamorous, but when I am feeling weary of serving, I just remind myself that I'm doing a good thing uh, in helping those who are less fortunate than I am. So what's, what's the difference in motivation between those two volunteers? Is one better? Is one more virtuous than the other? Ashton. else thoughts on that actually go ahead
3: it sounds like it sounds like the first person is doing it and receiving joy the second person is doing it as an obligation and the joy may or may not be
0: there yeah 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 obligation pounds on the right door there duty it is my My obligation, it's my duty, I have to do this. And therefore, eventually it becomes drudgery. And okay, I, you know, there's others who are less fortunate than me, I should do this, it's a good thing. As opposed to the one who truly is delighting in that serving and delighting in the joy it is bringing other people. So uh, there was a quote in the book by Pascal he said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever. Different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object, their happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Just a dramatic thought, especially that twist on the end that... Every action that we are take, we are seeking our own joy and our own happiness. Only most of the time we're seeking it in ourselves or the things around us, or the escape from things around us, rather than seeking our true joy, as Piper keeps pointing us to, in God himself. So the first conviction of Christian hedonism is the longing to be happy is a universal human experience. It is good and not sinful. So that desire for happiness. Now, where we find that, that's where we get off track and we can actually get into sinful territory. But the desire for joy and happiness is actually a God given um, thing that comes from him rather than from just sin and selfishness. Uh, Just one more comment real quick here, because I want to try and breeze through this without speed reading through it. uh, If you have comments and questions, uh, maybe (coughs) jot them down and then at the end we'll talk through them. Okay, that and I'll try and ask a few questions sprinkled in to make sure you guys stay awake. Uh, But other than that, uh, we'll try and speed through. So make sure you jot down your comments. Uh, Insight number two, uh, the quote from Lewis that Piper uses. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics. And is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too we are far too easily pleased. So that leads us to the second conviction of Christian hedonism. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. We can say that without qualification, because the thing that provides the most deep and Enduring satisfaction is God himself. Everything else on this planet will leave you flat, including church, including uh, Bible study, including school of ministry, which all fall into the good things category. And yet just that will leave you flat. It is God himself. He is the reason for the study of his word. He is the reason for fellowship with brothers and sisters. It's kind of important uh insight 3 uh, again quoting pascal there once was a man there once was in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings seeking from things absent the help that does not attain in things present but these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled By an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God Himself. So, working from that insight, and let's have a little back and forth here. uh, Respond to this statement I believe in God because faith strengthens my marriage. It has also been shown that having faith is good for your health and allows you to live longer. I believe in God because it will strengthen my marriage. Why are you coming to church? Man, I need to turn my life around. I, I need to fix my marriage. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people tell me that. How do you respond to that? You're
4: believing in God for the wrong reasons. At that
0: point, right? Okay, believing in God for the wrong reasons?
5: to church because you want to worship God and you want to follow him yeah, yeah.
1: A, you're creating an idol in your head that's a false God it gives that type of notion of this um, give to get rather than um, yeah you like you give up things or you sacrifice things so that you can get something out of it right I think however can you read that
3: State that first statement one more time.
0: Sure. Uh, I believe in God because faith strengthens my marriage. We'll, we'll just kind of leave her on that one. I think one
3: there. we all have an impetus of something that leads us to God. I think of uh, a, a marriage where maybe one person is a Christian, one person is not, and maybe the person who's not a Christian can see the impact of God in their marriage, and that can lead them to the doorstep of Christ. And in that sense, that statement could be valid. Yeah, But if it stays there, they're not developing Good. as a Christian. Good,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, especially when you consider that the Bible is going to say there's no one righteous, not one. No one seeks after God. And so you may have a whole host of things that leads people into the door of uh, being willing to even think about and consider Christ's lordship in their life. But if they stay planted in this position, man, I, I just got to work on myself. I got to be a better person. Uh I got to try harder, have a better marriage, Uh, what they really and one of the things you can use to disarm that argument is what is it you really want? Well, I want to stop fighting with my wife. What is it you really want? I want to be financially secure. Uh, I want to be free from whatever addiction that's there. Those are all good things, right? But they cannot be the ultimate thing. Or like Jason said, they immediately become the idol. At some point, it has to transition, hopefully sooner rather than later, to joy in God himself, in knowing him and being known by him. Uh, So think about that first volunteer who seemed motivated by pleasure that he or she is taking and serving. And the second one motivated by some sense of duty to do the right thing. How many times have we seen that person who comes in and says, why am I here? It's because I need to fix my marriage. Uh, When... Things don't immediately get fixed in their marriage. That sense of duty and obligation immediately evaporates. That they were, they were worshiping the wrong thing. All right. Third conviction of Christian hedonism: uh, the deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God, not from God, but in God. Big distinction there. Not. Not is found from God. If you do things the right way, if you, uh, if you read all of our books and you start doing things our way and not the world's way, well, then you'll have happiness in your life. Then you'll have your best... I can't remember how the rest of that book goes, but... <laughs> all right. Uh, did you guys see that there were protesters at Joel Osteen's church? Ab- abortion protesters went in and like stripped down and we're screaming at him disrupting the service like please number one it's okay to disrupt no never mind but don't make him feel like a martyr like he's the one true bastion of truth all right uh so it's delight in god not from god not the things god can give you so the fourth insight uh, is one that we could all arrive at if we reflected on our own experiences example here why do two people who are in love have a hard time restraining public expressions of their affection is it more enjoyable to watch a sporting event alone or with a friend i remember when the movie napoleon dynamite came out we watched it by ourselves and we're like this is terrible this is the worst movie ever made and then we watched it with friends and we're like this may be the funniest thing i've ever seen
6: but have you ever watched Gentleman Bronco?
0: gentleman bronco <laughs> uh, so why are those things true why, why is there a change in those uh, after eating a delicious but little at a delicious but little known restaurant why is your natural impulse when you meet someone you know to immediately start talking about that restaurant and that food because you're delighting in it that which we delight in uh, we take joy in we talk about our, our lives sort of echo with that therefore, we should, if we're delighting in God, if we're desiring God, that should be the fruit that's just sort of exploding out of our life, out of our conversations, out of the people that we are around. We are just, uh, as Piper is going to say in other places, glorying in the cross in all the good gifts that are in our life. Uh, C.S. Lewis quote here, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, uh, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval or the giving of honor. I had, noticed, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. My whole, more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help but doing about every, everything else that we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That's, that's what going to that amazing little restaurant that you just discovered uh, with the most amazing food ever, if you said, now let's keep this a secret, it would just eat at you. Part of that joy and delight isn't fully realized until we joyfully share that with others, invite others into that. So uh, according to Lewis, what is the relationship between commending your favorite restaurant to someone else and praising God? Lewis is going to argue that just as your enjoyment of a good restaurant naturally results in commending it to other people, the same should be true of our enjoyment of God. It should compel us to joyful praise. That's why when the church gathers to sing together, uh, our praise should be uh, exploding out of our hearts, not just reading words on a screen. The words on a screen should just be the prompt of uh, some awkward situation where you have two lovers who stand uh, reading the words of their favorite love song, but they're saying it to each other and it just sort of wells up in their heart as opposed to two people just reading boring poetry like they were in eighth grade to each other. It's just awkward and completely misunderstood, which sadly describes a lot of the singing time in churches. So fourth uh, conviction of Christian hedonism, the happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it's shared with others in the manifold ways of love. Insight five, Uh, some scriptures here uh, from the following Psalms uh, and If you want to just jot down the references, you can look them up later. I'll read them to you here. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63:1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 36, 7 and 8. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast in the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Psalm 34, 8. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 43, verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at right hand, pleasures forevermore. So taken together, just think about those verses, just hearing them one after another like that. Uh, what do they teach us about God and then about the Christian life? Pursue joy in God. Pursue joy in God. Yeah. How much of that sounded like duty and obligation? Nothing. It, the whole uh, going to somebody to twist and bend their arm. Listen, brother. Hebrews 10 says that you're not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. And man, you're doing that. You're not being faithful. You got to show up to church more. Well, that's true. But once we're having that conversation, uh, it's like saying, listen, brother, you, you married her. Uh, you should live in the same house with her. We have a deep problem if I have to try and compel you to live in the same house with your wife. Right. That. The wheels have come off the bus. You have a whole bunch of Christians who are delighting in someone else. These verses teach us that God himself is infinitely full of joy and that we are commanded to pursue our joy in his joy, delighting ourselves in him. All right, fifth conviction of Christian hedonism. To the extent that we try to abandon the pursuit of our own pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people. Or to put it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of all worship and virtue. That is, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So a couple statements here. Uh, Number one, from the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, Piper makes the argument that it should be by enjoying him forever. Literally, only John Piper can get away with Uh, amending uh, a catechism that's several hundred years old, like, I've thought this through. I think I got a better idea. Whew, I would not attempt that. Uh, So why might the difference between these two statements be significant? Uh, Really, as he argues in the book, uh, the first statement is the relationship between glorifying God God and enjoying him. Uh, You have this ambiguous connection with the word And. Uh, It might cause us to think that it's possible to glorify God without enjoying him or vice versa. Uh, Though the statement does indicate that these two together are the chief end singular of man. The second statement makes the relationship clear by positing that we glorify God by enjoying him, by delighting in him, by desiring him. The root of the matter in desiring God, Piper ends his introduction with this paragraph, this book will be predominantly a meditation on scripture. It will be expository rather than speculative. If I cannot show that Christian hedonism comes from the Bible, I do not expect anyone to be interested, let alone persuaded. There are a thousand man-made philosophies of life. If this is another, let it pass. There is only one rock, the word of God. Only one thing ultimately matters, glorifying God the way that he appointed. That is why I'm a Christian hedonist. That's why I wrote the book. So why might he have ended the introduction another way? It, he wants to make clear that this philosophy of Christian hedonism is not his own idea. It resonates throughout all of Scripture, uh, believing that not only the Bible teaches it, but that it teaches it everywhere. Therefore, if the reader of this book is not convinced that sc- from Scripture that Christian hedonism is, hedonism is true, then they should uh, not adopt this way of life. And finishing out this section, I told you this feels like a giant book review in the, the first one here. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. Number one, by appearing to their understanding. And number two, in communicating himself to their hearts in their rejoicing and their delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. Jonathan Edwards was a really smart guy, by the way. Um, I have a great illustration of that. And I'll just be honest, it's, it's fairly pg 13 Uh, But those of you who are married have probably seen this acted out in your life. Uh, It's one thing to see something beautiful and glorious. It's another thing to delight in seeing something beautiful and glorious. Uh, So God has put his glory on display in mankind that he has made in his own image and in his own likeness. Uh, In marriage, we get to see a representation of that male and female together as one flesh. Uh, together reflecting the nature and character of God but we can see this uh, seeing sort of abstractly the goodness of God's creation and then glorying in God's creation so um, when the husband is getting out of the shower and the wife is coming into the room she sees the glory of God in his body on display and maybe takes note of it like yep That's my naked husband. And then she looks away and goes about her business, not really wanting to focus and glory in that and rejoice with great joy. And then you switch roles and the husband sees his wife getting out of the shower and there is exaltation. (laughs) I told you, it's kind of PG-13. But that, I mean, you think about it. One of those is our intended, uh, what we should see when we see the glory of God on display. We should just stop and enjoy the end of session 1. I can't believe that we just recorded that. You're welcome.
6: A God-centered God.
0: Yep, lesson 2, the God-centered God. This one, guys, I'll use your help in reading some of these scriptures. Um so the intro here, who has the most passionate heart for God in the entire universe? is it Christians? Is it the redeemed? Is it Josiah? Is it the angels? The answer is no. The person who's most passionate about God is actually God himself. Yeah, we find that again and again for my own namesake, for my own glory. I will not share my glory with another. I will not let my name be defamed among the nations. So what is God most passionate about? To use that that catechism language, uh, what is the chief end of God? A quote from Piper from his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says the ultimate foundation for our passion to see God glorified is his own passion to be glorified. God is central and supreme in his own affections. There is no rivals for the supremacy of God's glory in his own heart. God is not an idolater. If we were selfishly, this is me jumping in, not Piper. If we were selfishly loving ourselves above all things, it would be idolatry because God alone deserves that love, affection, attention, and worship. But God is not an idolater. Back to Piper. He does not disobey the first and great commandment. With all his heart and soul and strength and mind, he delights in the glory of his manifold perfections. The most passionate heart for God in all the universe is God's heart. Super good. So the foundation of God's happiness. In this lesson, we're going to attempt to support from the Bible these following five assertions. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign over the world. Number two, God is infinitely happy. He is never hindered from doing what he pleases. Number three, God delights in his own glory above all else. His glory is uppermost in his affections. Number four, God's pursuit of the praise of his people is supremely loving. And pursuing God's glory and pursuing our joy is the same pursuit. All right. Uh, Dad, would you read Psalm 115 verses 2 through 7 that's there?
7: Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands they have mouths but do not speak eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear noses but do not smell they have hands but do not feel feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throat
0: all right so uh how is the god of israel contrasted with idols in this passage Uh, so Expand and paraphrase this statement, uh, and let's just talk about this for just a second. He does all that he pleases. What does it mean for God to do all that he pleases?
3: Are we talking about in contrast with the idols? Or just
4: in, general?
0: Uh, in general, however, you can contrast it. What does it mean for God to do all that he pleases? Else, fire away. He does what he
6: wants when he wants. He doesn't ask anybody for permission. <laughs>
1: nice, Josh. And he has the power to carry it out. Yeah, he yeah. has mm-hmm. the power to do it.
6: <laughs> his his saying that it will be is is doing it. I mean, when he says it, it's done.
0: That's actually a really good way to say that when he says it, it's done, Uh, because we're going to look at the decreed will of God versus the desired will of God that that can leave us pondering a few times. But when God decrees it, when God says it, he has the power to do it. And then he does whatever he wants, when he wants. He never has to ask anybody's permission.
8: Nobody has to create him in order for him to do something.
0: Yeah. (coughs) Self-existent. God does what he wants. Idols are powerless. God perfectly carries out everything that gives him pleasure. Nothing stops him from doing what he wants. Tim, you want to read those next two scriptures that are in there Psalm 135, 5 and
4: 6, and Acts 4. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Acts 4, 27, 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Good.
0: So true or false, respond to this question here. God predestined the crucifixion of his holy servant Jesus. True or false? true what's the relationship between number one God's joy God's sovereignty number two and number three our joy God's joy God's sovereignty and our joy the answer to that is God's sovereignty is the foundation of God's joy that the fact that he does what he wants he has the power to do that, that is the foundation of his joy since none of his purposes can be thwarted he must do all that pleases him, Psalm 115, verse 3, and be the happiest of all beings. God's joy is the foundation of our joy, for we seek our happiness in God Himself. Dad, can you read the quote by John Piper there?
7: What these two verses, 135, 6 and 155, 3, teach is that everything God takes pleasure in doing, he does, and cannot be hindered from doing. Or, to put it somewhat differently, all that he does, he takes pleasure in. He cannot be kept back from doing what he delights most to do, and he cannot be forced to do what he does not delight in. And this is true everywhere in the universe. That's the meaning of in heaven and on earth in seas and all depths good
0: so let's look at struggling a little bit with god's sovereignty Uh, for those who object to god's sovereignty uh, the objections are not typically directed to biblical passages that clearly teach god's sovereignty but directed to logical problems surrounding god's sovereignty and evil so again just jot down some of these verses that are here and I'm just going to read through these real quick. Uh, I'll give you the references, and you can look them up for yourself. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Ezekiel 18:23, and then 31 through 32. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Cast away from you now all the transgressions that you have committed. Make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Deuteronomy twenty-eight, sixty-three. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you, and you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. I'm guessing not many people have that one underlined in their Bible. <laughs> That's a fun one. Did you send that to the guy in Africa? I did not send it to the scammer, but Avery and Jody, I'm deeply regretting it right now. I feel like I let you down. So, how do we reconcile these seeming contradictions in these verses? Uh, In order to be faithful to biblical texts, we must say that there is a sense in which God does, in fact, take pleasure in the death of the wicked, for example, uh, and as a sense in which uh, he does not. So thinking about the one where he's like, I delighted in blessing you. I will actually take delight, take glory in destroying you. And yet. It's also true that God doesn't delight in evil in and of itself, but rejoices to see how evil su- serves his own good purpose. I, I think that's actually the answer, that, that God is working to bend everything that is evil in this world for his own uh, glory, for his purpose, for his pleasure, his passion upon the earth. Uh, Tim, you want to read uh, from Acts chapter 3. This is verses 13 through 15, and then 17 through 19.
4: The God of Abraham... God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ was suffered, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. I yep, good. Yet yeah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief.
0: Good. So did God maybe just think and talk about this for a second, did God take pleasure in the denial and murder of his son? Stretch it out, expand it a little bit. How on earth can that be true? Because it fulfilled
3: his will.
6: Well simultaneously very upset at <laughs> people. <laughs> well, it, was the, it Good. was the culmination of the redemption of a people to himself through so The ultimate picture of justice being enacted and also grace. So it it basically showed all of his glorious attributes in one fell swoop. Yeah.
1: And all of his glory on this. choices in the fact that this these predestined actions resulted in the reconciliation and ultimately more importantly the glorification of himself. Yeah.
0: Good. Yeah, it's in that context that we read again Isaiah 53:10. Because that's true, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief keeping in mind that God delights in all that he does, he only does what he pleases, because it was going to so perfectly accomplish his plan upon the earth, he was pleased to crush his own son. Uh, so a quote from Piper here, the Bible shows Deuteronomy thirty-eight sixty-three, Proverbs 1, Revelation 18, Ezekiel 5, Isaiah 30, that even acts of judgment, which in... One sense, do not please God. In another sense, do please him. Our method is not to choose between these texts but or to cancel uh, one out by the other, but to do deep enough. What's that? Should be yeah. I'm going to say do doesn't make sense there, but go deep enough into the mysterious mind of God to see as far as possible how both are true. How shall we account for this apparent tension? The answer I propose is that God is grieved in one sense by the death of the wicked and pleased in another. God's emotional life is infinitely complex beyond our ability to fully comprehend. For example, who can comprehend that the Lord hears in one moment of time the prayer of 10 million Christians around the world and sympathizes with each one personally and individually as a caring father, as Hebrews 4.15 says. Even though among those 10 million prayers, some are broken hearted, some are bursting with joy. How can God weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice when they're both coming to him at the same time? Uh, I think that's wrong too. In fact, our, it says in face, but it can't be in face. Uh, are always coming to him uh, with no break at all. So it, constantly coming before the Lord. This is why it's good to know that God is immutable. He doesn't change. His emotions are not swayed one way or the other. Uh, or can you comprehend that God is angry at the sin of the world every day? Psalm 711. Yet every day, every moment, he is rejoicing with tremendous joy because somewhere in the world, sinner, a sinner is repenting. Luke 15 Who can comprehend that God continually burns with hot anger at the rebellion of the wicked and grieves over the unholy speech of his people, Ephesians 4, yet takes pleasure in them daily, Psalm 149, and ceaselessly makes merry over penitent prodigals who come home? Who of us could dare say what complex emotion is not possible for God? All we have to go on here is what he has chosen to tell us in the Bible, what he has told us is that there is a sense in which he does not experience pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. And there is a sense in which he does that's from his book, the pleasures of God. So <laughs> it, I feel like occasionally John Piper uh, falls into the same category as uh, Peter talking about the apostle Paul. Uh, is this explanation understandable to you? Is it satisfying to you? Uh, Think about, respond to this statement, all right? So give, give a little feedback here. I can't believe that God delights in everything that he does because that would mean he delights in evil. One more time. I can't believe God would delight in everything he does because that would mean he delights in evil.
3: There, there's a problem with that statement, by the way. God can't do evil.
0: Why not? Yes, yeah. Became the light in the result of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And can he bend it towards his own will yes. and his own desires? I love the Martin Luther quote: uh, "Even the devil is God's devil." Just fantastic that all of the evil that we see around us that we freak out and have to put the next Facebook post about, God is not freaked out. He's perfectly sovereign and control of. I, I saw a, uh, a Burger King ad today that made me want to never eat at Burger King again. And uh, my family's seen it because I sent it to them. I'm like, you got to be kidding. Even that, God is perfectly in control of that. And God is bending Pride Month for his glory. Uh, to each his own. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chick-fil-A. There it is. All right, God's happiness is in himself. Uh, Look at the following verses about God's creation. Dad, you want to read these? Sure, Psalm
7: 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah 43, 6-7 I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made.
0: Good. So what is the purpose of the created world? What's the purpose behind the creation of man? The created world exists to display the glory of God. The whole earth is full of his glory. In addition, mankind was formed and made for the glory of God. That's super important because one of the tendencies now, now most people catch it when they start thinking down this road is that god uh created us because he was lonely god wants you god needs you this makes it into sermons and songs all the time that it's all about you and and god has finally realized when you live your best life now the reset for that is no all that god has done he has done for his own glory including the creation of man Uh, We were made for his glory. It's not primarily about you. It's primarily about him. So uh, it is clear that God is worthy of all glory. For that, he has made us. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Who's saying that in Revelation chapter 4? multitude upon multitude of saints gathered around the throne it's sort of that culmination of all things as they they gather around the throne and say this is what it's all been pointing to you receive glory and we just get to be in the choir so as you uh look at the following verses notice what God's intention was behind his deliverance of Israel in the plagues upon Egypt and then Israel's exodus Tim you want to read these they're in exodus
4: Exodus nine, thirteen through sixteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on your on you yourself, and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 14, 13-18 And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The 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 Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Thanks.
0: Uh, So think about this just for a second. Uh, Exodus nine, God says to Moses, go have a conversation with Pharaoh. And then he says to Pharaoh. I haven't destroyed you with one stomp of my foot like I could, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Is Pharaoh a good guy or a bad guy in this story? bad guy right Uh, he's the one who is holding god's people captive so how is it in pharaoh's life that god is going to uh, demonstrate his power that his name may be proclaimed worshipped exalted among the earth how does that play out in pharaoh's life Very very badly for him yeah in destruction in god's judgment upon him in pain and suffering and even the death of uh, the firstborns. We're we're, we're just talking devastation on a nationwide scale and God says, I could have done this all at once, but I wanted to stretch this thing out. Man, contemplate that. And yet, the reference that we mentioned a couple times on Sunday, behold the kindness and severity of God. The severity With Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the kindness towards his people, as he says, I'm going to deliver you. You cannot fight for yourselves, so just stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. He is the one who's working for you today as he wipes out Pharaoh, uh, his chariots, and his horsemen. All of his army that you can't stand up to because foot soldiers are terrible against chariots are going to mean nothing as God fights that. Uh, So why, just respond to this a little bit, why does God deliver Israel from Egypt in the way that he does? Let's think that out a little bit. Not willing to give his glory to another. Good, not willing to give his glory to another. So how is he doing?
6: Still talking about. Well, the most, it, was, it was like the most powerful nation around, and he crushed all of their gods and made them look like, well, nothing like they were.
3: Yeah. So I think at that time, he did what he did in the way that he did to make it undeniable that it was him doing
0: it. Good. Yep. Because this rowdy lot of slaves could not have done this themselves had no way to
3: organize themselves unless, specifically, Moses came to them in that way. Yeah. And by by just by um, putting down the gods of Pharaoh, he's checking off the list. This one was not it. This this god, he's not the one. This yeah. god,
5: he's not the one. Good. Good. And we can check off. Before he goes into Egypt, he's like, "God, I am dumb. I can't do this." <laughs> so he, like, God's like, "I will speak on your behalf." Yeah. And so we can kind of check Moses off as gathering together <laughs> as well. Good. And, so and I can't speak. Yeah. yeah.
8: It also speaks to his people of who their God is. They didn't.
3: We did a play a number of years ago at Prairie Heights called Mortar Man Meets His Maker. Fantastic play done by a Christian author. Uh, The whole concept of the play is that the characters in the play discover that that there is an author to their play. And no matter what they do in the play, they cannot go against the will of the author because even that has been written in by the author. It's a great, my mind keeps going back to that. You know, it doesn't matter what Pharaoh did, that was all prescribed yeah. by God. It, it's, I think we should do that in the church.
1: I think should, no, seriously, let's do it. It's, it's a fun. fantastic
3: plan. Well, yeah, God, hard, God hardened <laughs> his heart. Yep. Yeah.
0: saves and delivers his people as he fights their battles for him for them but he does it himself we're told in exodus 14 14 god demonstrates that it is by his power alone that israel is delivered and again he does this so that he would be glorified and known as the one true god again god is doing it for his own glory notice this passage about how the new deliverance of God would... The new deliverance... There's so many typos in this about how the deliverance of God uh, would come to his people. Uh, Psalm 79, verse 9.
7: Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. For your name's sake. And Here in the testimony of Jesus, John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed.
0: So what was Jesus intention while on earth? His intention was to accomplish all the work which his father had given him to do. Uh, it's clear that in doing these things Jesus brought the Father glory. Uh, John 171 through 2 Jesus prays that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Jesus, as God delights to give glory to the Father and receive glory from the Father. So another strand of evidence for the centrality of God's glory in God's own heart is the wrath of God against all sin. So sin is described, Romans 3:23, as falling short of the glory of God, failing to reflect the glory of God as we ought to. Uh, sin is an affront to God because it belittles His glory. How is that true? How is sin a belittling of God's glory? This is actually pretty central. That everybody who gets caught, especially in repetitive sin, this is one of the key truths that really helps them. How is sin a belittling of God's glory? Finding satisfaction idol, in the sin. Yep. Creating an idol.
7: What he said in the introduction, we're not pursuing the ultimate happiness. We're satisfied with too little.
0: Good. Yeah. Satisfied with too little. The, the whole thing Lewis had pointed at, that uh, God doesn't think our passions are too strong but too weak. We're satisfied with fallen, broken pleasures rather than finding it in true satisfaction in God himself good.
3: That any time we sin, it stems from seeking glory in something that is other than God, and saying that God's glory is not enough, therefore Mm -hmm. belittling it.
0: Yeah. Yep.
3: Steals worship from him.
0: Yeah. It places our worship, our affection, our attention on something other than him, in an idolatrous way. And the truth is God cannot tolerate sin because God cannot tolerate anything that would slander his own infinite worth. That's what sin does. It, it slanders God. It says, nope, God's not enough. Nope, God is not sufficient. Nope, God's plan for uh, human flourishing or finances or sexuality or family or worship, not enough. Uh, there's another route to happiness. Everybody finds their own happiness and it slanders his infinite worth and value. All right, we got a little time. I think we're doing pretty good. Grab your phones or Bibles or whatever you have, uh, and let's flip through these together. Jeremiah 13, verse 11. And Tim, you want to go ahead and read that? <coughs> was it? Jeremiah, 13.
6: Jeremiah
4: 13, verse 11. Whereas. As the loin cloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, and declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and of glory, but they would not listen. Romans. Romans Just
0: contemplate that one for just a second. Can we do that? <laughs> I one of the things that I am I am convinced of is that we have We have pulled in some Victorian ideals of modesty and propriety uh, that really weren't all throughout human history until about the mid-1800s. And then we've adopted them as if this is like, well, this is what Christians should and shouldn't talk about. God says, just like underwear sticks to a guy, I've made my people to stick to me. (laughs) Just... Just fantastic, oh, so good! All right, uh, flip to Romans one.
3: Wow, just um, that image um, of underwear. Yeah, (laughs) no, really, that that we should cling to the most intimate parts of God in our walk with Christ. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. It's
0: some. It's an amazing thought that doesn't fit inside of a little Victorian box of appropriateness. <laughs> well, read
6: Ezekiel too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> read Did the whole thing. Read Ezekiel, read as God tells Isaiah to walk around naked for a period of time to demonstrate that God's people are naked. Uh, now we're not gonna start the Wedgie Society, <laughs> right? You know? We're gonna get real close. Close to the Lord. <laughs> We're going to avoid that. All right, Romans 1
4: uh, Tim you want to read 18 and then 21 through23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were dark and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools in exchange of glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things.
0: This is one of those passages, if you underline things in your Bible, uh, this is a good one to have underline. Uh, Why is God's wrath? There's a lot of people today who have a giant problem with the idea of a God who would have wrath on anybody. Because we live in a, a really strange time where you're not allowed to tell anybody anything that is wrong uh, or you're judgmental and you hate them. And then people will go through all kind of ridiculous mental gymnastics to try and have a coherent worldview out of that, and it doesn't work, right? Uh, Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is revealed. We can see it on the earth, and it's coming from heaven against ungodliness, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, by their sin, are suppressing the truth. The the truth is out there, that the truth of God's word is plain and obvious and should be obvious when somebody walks up to you and says, can you tell me what is a woman? And instead of answering the most basic, fundamental question throughout all of human history, they get angry and accuse you of being a hater and still can't come up with an answer. It is, it is jarring, the, the level of moral insanity in our world. What is happening? Every time you see that, your brain needs to go suppressing the truth. Suppressing the truth. They're suppressing the truth. It will help you not lose your mind every time you look at the world around you and go, what on earth is happening? Exactly what God said is happening. They're suppressing the truth. And what we should expect is God's wrath being revealed against that. Yeah, the only difference between us and them is that God chose in his grace and his mercy, not because you were super smart, to open your eyes. So you have seen it. And they're still blind in their sin. Good. Ashton.
3: So I was kind of thinking about this earlier. I was going to ask you later, but since we're kind of talking about it now, why is it not evil or unjust of God to create and predestine civilizations pre-Jesus that would have never heard of why is it not evil and not unjust of him to create them with the sole purpose of being predetermined to determine the
0: nation? Yeah.
3: I don't
0: know the answer. I'm <laughs> so I, I'm going to restate the question and then throw it out there for public comment. Uh, why is it not unjust that God would create entire civilizations either pre-Jesus or after Jesus, we can add that one in too, who have uh, never heard of Christ. They've never heard of uh, his sacrifice of salvation in him. Is it unjust of God to create those people and then judge them for being those people who haven't trusted in Christ? Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's a good answer. It's not a satisfying. Yeah, that's the, the problem. <clears throat> I, I, like, I kind of
3: know the answer, but I just don't
5: feel satisfied
3: with it. Okay. So, what
6: is sense. what is the chief end of man? To uh, glorify God. To glorify God. Um, so, throughout human history, God has. It, it's kind of like. He set creation. He set creation, and true creation. Known, his attributes known, his justice, love, wrath, mercy, all that's known. And for his purposes, he created them so that certain of his attributes could be known.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I will have mercy on yeah. him. I will have
2: mercy.
6: Yes. Yeah, so and then and then we have to go back to God's ultimately sovereign over the decisions of who hears about him, who trusts him. Because not everybody who hears So they're in the same boat, right? Yeah. Uh, just one had a little more grace, but but their eyes were not open
5: to
3: that. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe a better question for me is is if I understand why does it feel hard to why why don't I feel satisfied with those answers if that makes sense? Like because I think we're comparing our definition of good to a definition of good as defined by God not truly understand what is good unless it is uh, God defines
6: what is good I like that whole conversation
0: between God and Job and I I think there's a second layer that's underneath that one as well Uh, So we don't understand, we're not good at defining what's good and evil and yet we have an intrinsic uh, feeling of an understanding of what's good and evil And so this kind of sets outside of that boundary. The second layer that's underneath that, and especially for people like us, growing up in in sort of the the area community that we have, one of the things when we think about it, in fact, it's the way that we frame the question to start with, the, the predeterminer of them being saved or not saved was them having the ability to hear and then make a conscious choice and decision for salvation or against salvation. And God doesn't say that's how salvation works. God says, I will have compassion on who I want to, and I will harden who I want to. And so he's going to say to Pharaoh, by the way, why were you born? So that I could raise you up, so I could harden your heart, so I could destroy you and bring glory to myself. Like That's the reason God said that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was born. And in the reality of uh, salvation history, salvation is accomplished by God and for God. And as part of that, as one of the means of that, uh, he reveals Christ in such a way where we uh, choose him, uh, we fall at the feet of the cross and uh, receive his, the satisfaction of his sacrifice. And yet our choosing isn't the determinative factor, God is
6: the potter said that the clay, why did you make this way? Yeah. Uh, is, that, is that, okay, the rest of it is um, he prepared some vessels for uh, honorable and dishonorable use.
0: Yeah, that's exactly Paul's argument that he makes mm-hmm. in that passage. And then he says, if you're thinking about this right, it, especially from a, uh, like somebody who's sort of standing outside of that circle, the, the natural response that you should have is, is there... Injustice? Is there inequity in God? And that's when He goes, "Who are you?" Back to the Job argument: Who are you to tell God what He can make—some for honor, some for dishonor? Uh, So I I think you have the—we don't understand uh, God's justice and righteousness. We, uh, the layer underneath that, we think it's all about our choice. And then I think the layer under that is that every living person has been born. Ecclesiastes three tells us with eternity written stamped upon their hearts that some knowledge of good and evil stamped upon their soul and rather than like jason pointed to at the beginning rather than choosing with all of their life heart soul mind and strength to honor obey and glorify god in lives of holiness and righteousness they choose to live in honor of themselves and so because of that they fall short of the glory of god and then you start stacking those up we think the remedy is their choice and it's actually god's choice to save Seth, what were you gonna say? So, just it's just a question.
2: I'm not trying to sway it any one way, but is it so the chief end of man being that we would be satisfied in God, or that we would glory, glorify God, and enjoy Him, or by enjoying Him? Yeah. Um, but that's not true, though.
0: It's yes. not true practically for their lives. It's still true okay. for the trajectory yes. of their lives. Yeah, it doesn't yeah.
1: change. It doesn't change their original they, intended purpose for being alive. Like, okay. They still whether yeah. they fill out, they live out that purpose or not. What, whether Good. whether
6: it's whether it's uh, glorifying His justice and or His mercy, they're still glorifying God.
0: Yeah. Okay. They've just missed the chief end of man. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. One more here. Isaiah forty-eight. Let's flip to that one. 9 through 11. Dad, you want to read this one? Yes. We'll give people just a second to get there. What
7: oh, verses? Isaiah 48, 9, 9 is through 11. Thank you. I thought it was like that. For my name's sake, I deferred my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another.
0: So is God for us or is God for himself? Uh, he is for himself huh? Yes, yes. Because he is for himself, he is for us. Uh, but it, both are true. The preeminent one is God is for himself. So we'll approach this question or the objection a little indirectly here. Uh, start by considering something that we've already established. Uh, Tim, you want to read that quote by Sam Storms?
4: What is the preeminent passion in God's heart? What is God's greatest pleasure? And what does God take supreme delight? I want to suggest that the preeminent passion in God's heart is His own glory. God is at the center of His own affections. The supreme love of God's life is God. God is preeminently committed to the fame of His name. God is Himself the end for which God created the world. Better still, God's immediate goal in all He does is is all his own glory. God relentlessly and unceasingly creates, rules, orders, directs, speaks, judges, saves, destroys, and delivers in order to make known who he is and to secure from the whole of the universe the praise, honor, and glory of which he and he alone is ultimately and infinitely worthy. The question I most often hear in response to this is that if God loves himself preeminently, how can he love me at all? How can we say that God is for us and that he desires our happiness if he is primarily for himself and his own glory?
0: All right, taken from Sam Storm's article, What is Christian Hedonism? Uh, a few scriptures to consider along this path. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I will give to no other, nor my praise uh, to carved idols. Isaiah forty-eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake, I love that repetition there, that in the Hebrew language, that's like putting an exclamation mark at the end of whatever it is. For my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned or my glory I will not give to another? Exodus 34, 12 to 14, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. And Psalm 97, verses 6 through 7. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. This, by the way, Ashton gets to that thing of like, what about the people who haven't heard directly of Christ? And the psalmist is going to say that the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. So God is jealous for his own glory. He will not allow his glory to go to another. But what if God's glory was not supreme in God's own heart? Just think about that for a second. What if God's supreme glory was not himself? What if it was something else?
4: That something else would be
0: God. That something else would be God. That, that's a really good, simple answer to that. Like Whatever that thing is, that's God. Whatever is the ultimate thing worthy of our attention, affection, is God in the universe. Uh, there are many disastrous consequences, consequences which would flow from this. Uh, God would cease to be God if he exchanged his own glory for the glory of any created thing. Uh, that's Romans 1, uh, 23, Jeremiah two, eleven. Or at least he would be unrighteous. God would be hypocritical in demanding our worship. For why should we worship God if God does not esteem himself above all things? Number three, we would be left in utter doubt and despair. For where would we go to find truth and ultimate value if God abandoned his own infinite worth? It only makes sense that God is the ultimate lover of himself. We have trouble with that because we can't see and hear and think of things from God's perspective, only from a human perspective, And we've all been around long enough to know if you're an ultimate lover of yourself, there's something really wrong with that picture. So the next move in this argument takes for granted that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Psalm 84 verse 11. Or as James is going to say, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of Light's with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, James 1, 17. As an aspect of God's love, then, it is to give good gifts to his children. That's part of what God does. He gives good gifts to his children. Now, not like the TV preachers would have us believe that his end desire is in giving good gifts to his children and the flourishing of his children, uh, but because he has created us for his own glory, uh, he gives good gifts to us. Uh, Therefore, the following implication must be true. If God did not give us good gifts, and especially if he withheld the greatest gifts from us, then he would not love us. So parents, think about uh, what would happen with your child if you knew what was good and right and healthy for them, and you withheld that from them, and... Uh, Like just the other day, we had National Donut Day. I don't know if you knew that or if it passed you by unaware. Um, But if it's National Donut Day and you go get your kids a a nice tall drink of heroin, and they're like, but dad, I want some heroin today. You're like, whatever. It it would make you a terrible parent, right? Uh, (laughs) it, It would make God a terrible parent if he allowed us to delight in something else other than what is good and ordained for us. All right.
4: So are you saying
0: donuts are ordained for us? I'm saying donuts are God's gift to humanity. That's what I'm arguing for. All right. Uh, so just shoot this around a little bit. What do you consider God's greatest gift to us? Himself. himself, right? God's greatest gift to humanity is himself, fellowship with God, the enjoyment of God, of his glory is the chief good of the gospel. The idea that we're going to develop and defend in the next session. If God withheld that enjoyment of his own glory, the knowledge of him like that, he would be unloving towards us. Therefore, he must elevate his glory above all things and never compromise if he is truly going to be for us. Finally, consider these following statements. Dad, you want to read these? Psalm
7: 33, 1 through 3. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. (coughs) Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings and with loud shouts. Psalm 113, 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Matthew 25, 21. Enter into the joy of your master. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say,
0: rejoice. So are these commands an expression of God's love or an expression for his desire for praise? Good. Uh, the glorious news of the gospel is that these commands are both an expression of God's love towards us and expression of his desire for praise as the highest uh, being in all of the universe. We never have to choose between glorifying God and being eternally happy. Therefore, God is loving in the pursuit of his own praise. So here's what we've seen in that. God is absolutely sovereign over the world. He does as he pleases. God is infinitely happy, delighting in himself. He's never hindered in doing what he pleases. God delights in his own glory above all else. His glory is uppermost in his affections. God's pursuit of his praise of his people is supremely loving. And pursuing God's glory, pursuing our joy is actually the same pursuit. All right, any comments, questions before we take a break? Okay, let's take about 10 minutes. Stretch your legs. We'll be back in just a little bit. Okay, lesson three. The God-centered gospel. We did. God is the gospel. This lesson will examine and defend the idea that salvation is great because fellowship with the living God is great. In fact, the greatest thing in the world. Uh, So what the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, that's not it. What the world needs most. Uh, what does it need the most? Uh, I wasn't even looking ahead. Oh my gosh. Seriously. Uh, what does the world need now? Perhaps the most familiar lyrics of the song. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now sing it with me class is love anyways all right uh love would probably be many people's answer to that question of what the world needs Uh, i guarantee if you ask most goshen college christians that's that's exactly the answer we just need more love and tolerance and understanding and and less judgmental and acceptance of everything and everyone Uh, So some might say world peace. Others would say uh, forgiveness of sins. That's more of a Christian answer than the first two. Uh, What does the Apostle Paul seem to need or at least desire most? Philippians Philippians 1.
7: Dad, go ahead. Philippians 1, 18 through 24. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain if i live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me yet which i shall choose i cannot tell i am hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and to be with Christ for that's far better but to remain in the fl- in the flesh is more necessary on your account,,
0: yeah. so how can Paul say to die is gain? How can death be gain when, in death he loses every earthly thing? Well, the answer is Paul can say death is gain because when he dies, he has the hope of departing and being with Christ. He must consider being with Christ better, in fact, far better than anything this earthly life can afford. Notice he does not say that death will bring the absence of pain being reunited with loved ones, etc. Uh, so that's one of the frequent refrains that you hear, even from Christians, uh, that the, the hope and the consolation in death, well, at least he's going to be with grandpa now. They're going to be together. Uh, now that may be true. If they're both believers, they may, they may be gathered uh, with myriad upon myriad, thousands upon thousands around the throne. They may or may not be standing next to each other, uh, but that's not the hope of the believer in death and life after death.
6: Or, you know, they joined us in that big party and stuff.
0: <laughs> <The big> <laughs> <laughs> it's our generation. So that's, yeah, yeah. I kind of feel like that's the last thing you'll be concerned about. I agree. Last thing you'll be concerned about when you step into eternity is... Frequently. And in fact, it frequently plays out. I'm either going to see somebody or the party thing. Like I'm going to the great celebration. And that couldn't be up or down. But that's
6: pretty
0: new age, so. That was that was uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell song, uh, which wasn't actually about the place of hell, was more about this party lifestyle. And all my friends are there. So why not do that forever? Ricky Bobby what did Ricky Bobby say I gotta make sure we capture Leonard Skinner t-shirt okay so compare Paul's testimony to what Peter says about our salvation did you notice the way I reeled that back in 1 Peter 3 17 and 18 Jonas would you read that for us
8: And for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right, so let's answer
0: this question. According to Peter, what is the purpose of our salvation? but just one at a time, one at a time.
1: Reconciliation. Keep going.
5: Yeah, the that
0: yeah that, in all things. So good things, bad things, uh, joyful things, difficult suffering moments that we are brought closer to God, that in, especially in the, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but it's in our suffering where we really seem to grow by leaps and bounds uh, in our, our walk with God, that in those difficult moments, we learn to trust God more. We, we learn to say, God, uh, you and your way are better than whatever this earthly thing has to offer, Uh, that we put on display the worth and worthiness of God himself. And That we become ambassadors of that reconciliation to the world. That we have been reconciled. I always like when Christians are careful with that word reconciliation. God has not been reconciled to us. That there's a a break in fellowship. There's a separation. And God never moves. That God doesn't reconcile to the sinner. Uh, The sinner is reconciled, reoriented, and moved towards God himself. All right, so... When asked what the gospel does for sinful man, many would say that the gospel gets us into heaven. In fact, disturbingly, I, I think if we took a, a straw poll of people, even at our own church, uh, what's the purpose of the gospel? What's the purpose of salvation? Probably one of the number one answers was, I get to go to heaven when I die. Uh, but why, why does someone want to go to heaven? Uh, what's in heaven that makes it so desirable to be there? Uh, how we answer that is actually super-duper important. Uh, I, was it Piper who said, maybe it was in this book, where he's like, if Jesus wasn't there, would you still want to go to heaven? Okay, Is it just about your comfort and your peace? If so, that doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. I think that was, uh, the maybe that's what it was. I feel like uh, like the writer of the Hebrews. Somewhere John Piper has said.
4: <laughs>
0: All right, uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 7. Tim, you want to read that one?
4: Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, According to this description of the Christian's final hope,
0: what's the central, foundational blessing of the new heaven and new earth? And it's found in the first thing that is declared. It's not, I get to go to heaven. It's not, I get to see my grandma again. It's that declaration in verse three, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That is when we were going through the book of Revelation, Uh, we tried to pause on that and say this is significant you cannot overstate this all of human history has been pointing towards this from the fall in the garden until this point a restoration of the dwelling place of god is with man that uninterrupted fellowship uh there are other blessings we read it in here uh God himself will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There's no more mourning, no more crying, uh, nor pain for the former things have passed away. Uh, there are other blessings that are associated with uh, eternal life in Christ. But the foundational starting point is the dwelling place of God is with man. So what does it mean? And let's, let's fill this out and answer it a little bit. What does it mean to say that God is the gospel? God is the good news. has been Uh, godless philosophers have been thrown around for the last 40 years we're just stardust just floating around life has no meaning no purpose aiden
5: God's wrath on this side, just just wrath, and then also Christ sacrificing himself for us so that we can be seen as just and perfect when we get to be reconciled to God, not just get to go to cloud land and get all to do the, the fun stuff. Yeah. But I think that's an important thing to make.
6: Figure up in, but the way he explained it looking back on it now, I'm just like baffled. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where he came from. Cloudland
0: is a good description. I like that. <laughs> that's kind of. Some
6: big square in the sky or something. I don't know. That well, that's an interesting point. I guess most people get their uh, theology of heaven from far side cartoons. <laughs> 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 not the Bible. Yep. I didn't, I
0: didn't realize that until I was. I think that's true? I think that's true. Anybody else, any thoughts on God is the gospel? What that means?
6: important um, God being the gospel then that—that that is the ultimate hope of mankind is to get back to the garden back in fellowship with God our fellowship was, was broken um, that would be the best news
0: Dad, what were you
7: going to say? John 14, 20 has been a transformative verse for me when I saw this. Jesus speaking of what would happen when the Holy Spirit came. He said, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Their frame of reference, God's Spirit, only came on people in the Old Testament, never indwelled them. Salvation, Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, which is the down payment on your inheritance in Christ, you'll know that I'm in the Father, I am in you, and you are in me. So if Christ is in the Father, and we are in Christ, and he is in us, then together we are in the Father. That's relationship beyond anything the old people in the uh, the people in the Old Testament could see. They're, They're old, yeah. and they yeah. were old. Thank yeah. you. Like you can that. say
0: that. Okay. Uh, so here's here's Piper's answer. Uh, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good. By the way, that includes salvation. That, that includes going to heaven, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. Mm-hmm. That the importance of that cannot be overstated. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, that every sin is actually an affront to that. Every time that we trade that glory for something else, as Romans 1 talks about, uh, we make God to be a liar and uh, we make ourselves to be fools. So defining the gospel, having introduced the key assertion of this lesson that God is the gospel. Let's now explain the term gospel, what that means. Although the term is used frequently in the New Testament, uh, the meaning is often assumed, especially by Christians. It becomes one more word of Christianese that we're pretty sure we know what it means. So let's look at three key passages in our attempt to form at least a preliminary understanding of this important word. So let's turn together to Mark chapter one. And we're going to read one. one.
7: And then verses 14 and 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wait, everybody got it yet? Did you turn to it? Mark 1. Sorry. I was excited. What verse?
0: Mark 1. We're going to read verse 1 and then verses 14 and 15.
7: We ready? Fire away. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel.
0: Good. So according to this passage that you're looking at, what is included in the term gospel? At least what does Mark tell us in Mark one here? Then it's all right to give a Sunday school answer here. Kingdom of God. Yeah, the, the kingdom of God is hand in hand with the proclamation of this is good news. Anything else? It is Jesus' gospel. Good.
6: The son of God. I mean, that's pretty important. Jesus.
0: Yeah. Repent and believe. Yeah. So the good news belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the son of god and then somebody just said the other one what, mu- what must we do linked with the gospel here repent, repent and Maybe and believe i said repent. he said repent and believe well, so it's yours. No, it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> all right so in jesus preaching the term gospel is often used in conjunction with the kingdom of god which we understand to mean the sovereign rule and reign of God upon the earth. Again, uh, the definition Josh so graciously provided a little bit ago, uh, he does what he wants, when he wants, and never has to ask anyone's permission. Uh, This promised restoration of the people of God was foretold in the prophets, and Jesus is announcing by proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that God is breaking into the world with that kingly authority, This calls for repentance and belief. So a quick question on that. Does that mean prior to this that God did not have kingly authority on the earth? No. No. Because there are there are some, especially uh, in the word of faith and Pentecostal traditions, who that's actually their answer is that before this, God's hands were tied on the earth. Uh, And in fact, after this, now his Holy Spirit is on the earth, but God can only work if uh, Christians, of his people speak it into being. That is, that is heretical nonsense. I've
6: actually never heard that.
0: Do they, what do they do with Job then? Because that's like the oldest book of the Bible, right? That's <laughs> old <laughs> <laughs> It's not in the Bible. Right? <laughs> okay, wait, I'm just saying. Removed. What do they do with that? Uh, theological gymnastics is, is mostly, I mean, that's. <laughs> That, that's what they're aiming at, is, is undermining. Uh, so Bill Johnson, the, the pastor of Bethel Church, um, who I believe is a Christian who deeply loves Jesus, who deeply loves the church of Jesus Christ, all right, I'm going to, let's lay that as a solid foundation, uh, said that the worst teaching in all of the church is the sovereignty of God. Now, he didn't mean the sovereignty of God as he would come across the word in scripture. What he meant is what we mean when we say the sovereignty of God, which he does all things for his own good, his own glory. He does whatever he wants, when he wants, never has to ask anyone's permission. Because their default position, word of faith, is that it is only when Christians speak the word of faith that God is activated. You'll you'll hear words, crazy words, about God being activated to do things. Like, you've got to be kidding.
3: Turn on the power button.
0: Yeah, it, it's it, it's so... Uh, Man, I shouldn't even say this because people are going to listen to this years later or not. All two of you, thanks for listening. Uh, We are supposed to call out false teachers. That's why we don't do any. uh, We've mentioned Bill Johnson by name several times uh, because I I think that's a heretical stand that puts him and his church outside the bounds of we're not doing their songs. They have a couple of really good songs and we're not doing them. Okay, good. Good talk. Let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Verses one through five. Jonas, would you read that one to us? Romans one, one through five.
4: Here we go.
8: Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations
2: good
0: Uh, did you notice at the end there the whole point and goal of this is uh, the glorification of his name among all the nations that all nations might praise and worship and rightly recognize who he is. Uh, by the way, that's the point of missions, that all nations, all places, all peoples might recognize and worship. Uh, so the question is, Paul is going to give us, he's going to introduce the phrase, the gospel of God in verse one, and then tell us what he means by it in verses one and two. So just look at it for just a second. Uh, This is as we think about progressive revelation, we we find God revealing sort of one facet and then it's like the diamond spins and you see another facet and another side to it. So what do we see in the gospel here in verses two through four that Paul is going to say is part of this good news? Son of God, in power. It's kind of a fun phrase to tack on in there. What was the
3: question again?
0: Uh, just what what is what are we told about the gospel here? Like, he mentions it that he is an apostle who's been set apart for the gospel of God, and then uh, verses two through four, he's going to kind of color inside those lines a little bit.
6: It was promised before him.
0: Yeah. That, that's the first one right off the bat. This is not a new idea. This isn't God fixing a broken world because he didn't see it coming. This was his promise beforehand. Descended from David. Yeah, that's the
6: so. it's By his resurrection. He came in. Grace. Beat that. I just want
4: to throw it out there. <laughs> <laughs> we all saying
6: it's so.
5: that. Grace!
6: Good. Yeah. That's the typical you response. Yes. Jesus!
0: Yeah, there's so many of those that I mean, you really could just sort of popcorn this thing again and again. Uh, it was promised; it's revealed in the Scripture. that It's about His Son. Uh, that, especially for the Jewish readers of this, uh, anchoring this in the history of God's people, that He's the descendant of David. Why? Why is it important that He's the descendant of David? Because
5: He promised He would be. Because He
0: promised He <laughs> would be, right? Promised beforehand that the Son of David would sit upon His throne and judge the nations that this is the Messiah Being an eternal throne. yeah, declared to be the son of God declared to have power uh, declared by the spirit of holiness by his resurrection of the dead he's not still dead he is a risen living Lord I mean there are so many things in this and then it culminates as actually Piper does in the book uh, Desiring God in. as it's going to say so what's the whole point of this missions the whole point of this is that the whole world might rightly see and recognize who God is. And I, I love uh, the shape of that in this book rather than, ah, finally we've seen it. Now we know. Yeah, one more Christian self help book. The whole point is uh, not only knowing him, but making him known. All right, uh, one more here. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's read verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Tim, you want to read that one?
4: Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. All right, same same question. What
0: what if the gospel is revealed in this?
4: It is all according to Scripture. Again and again, yeah. and, again and again.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. can't miss that.
6: Yeah, promise this. Here he is.
3: Was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture.
5: Yeah.
6: There's witnesses. Yep.
0: You are being saved. That's one of my yeah, favorite. Yeah, I know. Turn of phrase in here.
6: Yeah, I. Yeah, you could go on about that for an hour.
0: Yeah. I, I think there was there was one line book where he talked about uh, it's much less about a one-time decision Mm -hmm. and much more about a lifetime affection what is it that my heart loves and wants and desires not what did I do one time at church camp when I was eight there's something interesting about that that's lost in the King
6: James the being saved part
0: I I also love in here, how is that accomplished by holding fast to the word that was preached to you? So the communication of it isn't through sacrament, it's through preaching. That's super important. There was a giant swing in the New Testament church, away from sacramentalism of the the sacrifices being offered to the preached, declared gospel, which Paul is going to say, and I'm not ashamed of that, because that's the power of God unto salvation. Before that, The power of God the salvation was in the sacrifices and a life of obedience. Man, what a change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simply put, the gospel is the message that Jesus, who is the promised Messiah of Israel, died for the sins of his people, was buried, was triumphantly raised from the dead by God. This all happened according to the plan of God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. So number one, the gospel is an event. It, it is something that happened. It it, it took up space and time. It, real people, real event. Uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number two, uh, it, by the way, that, that's important because there's, there's entire segments out there who, who said Christ died, but he wasn't actually raised. His resurrection was sort of a, a metaphor for what it means for us to overcome our struggles in our life. That's our hope. Like there's giant wings of like the liberal episcopal church who stand on that. That's that's heresy. That he died according to the scriptures, he was raised according to the scriptures. Number two, he achieved something when he died. Achieved being the the pivotal word there, that something actually happened. Christ absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Do you have a question or comment? No, it was a thumbs down for the liberal church. <laughs> Thumbs down for liberal theology. Uh, Galatians 3.13. He's the propitiation. Uh, He bore our sins and purchased our forgiveness. Uh, That payment and purchase occurred 2,000 years ago. Again, this was an event. It took up space and time. That we can have forgiveness on a personal level comes later. He provided a complete and perfect righteousness for us. Now, his his accomplishing of our salvation happened 2,000 years ago. Our acceptance and our reception of that forgiveness was going to happen, for me, about 2,000 years after that. For Peter, about three days after that, right? So it, depending on when we live, uh, we have this, this timeline escalating where uh, we are called to engage with the gospel, not just... Say, oh yeah, it happened a long time ago. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that he was obedient unto death. That obedience, the obedience of Jesus Christ, is the obedience of Romans 5.19. Through one's man, one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That Christ completed it. On the cross, he's going to say, it is finished. It is completed, That using that word that meant paid in full. That he defeated death itself, Hebrews 2.14. He disarmed Satan by his suffering, Colossians 2.14. Uh, Satan can beat us up, but he cannot damn us. Man, that's an interesting and kind of encouraging thought. We may go through rough times, and uh, Christians say this way too much. Oh, man, the enemy's just picking on me. Okay, well, you're, you're probably thinking you're slightly more important than you actually are. Uh, <laughs> But the enemy actually can harass you. He can pick on you, and he is powerless against your eternity. Powerless. Praise God, good news. Uh, Because his one weapon of unpaid sin is gone. He can still accuse us, and yet Christ's blood speaks a better word. Where has that sin gone for us? It has been nailed to the cross. Uh, And Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire someday. Uh, There again, we we started it early on tonight talking about how uh, can God rejoice in uh, someone else's suffering? And this is one of those key moments where uh, you ask any person on the street, like, do you believe in heaven or hell? I don't know. I I think everybody's going to go to a better place. I don't really believe in hell. And then you go, where right now is Adolf Hitler? Oh, he's in hell least he better there's a rejoicing that comes with that and as god looks at the trajectory of uh, satan and his demise uh, there is joy in the fact that he prepared hell for the devil and his angels that god's special gift to him just just ruminate on that when you feel like the enemy's picking on you. man god has something laid out uh christ purchased perfect final healing and peace for all his people uh healing of uh, restoration, relationship, that whole thing we were just talking about of getting back to Eden, back to the garden that God has paid for that uh, in the stripes laid upon his son. By his wounds, we have been healed. Uh, Some of this is experienced in our lifetime. Usually glimpses, glimmers, flickers of it. Most of it is not experienced until we reach heaven. Yet Christ has secured for us eternal fellowship with God Himself, 1st Pre-Year 3:18. Number three, this free offer to be received by faith alone, not by our works. Uh, if there is a historical event, Christ's death on the cross, and it is offered on the basics of works, then there's no gospel at all. So if Christ died on the cross as an actual physical death, an actual event that happened, but the key to Tim's salvation is Tim's work. Well, then what Christ did on the cross was either insufficient or a complete waste of time. Because Tim could have just been better. It is best Tim now. So we nullify the cross if we make our justification by works. So faith becomes crucial. Now... Can I just put a word of caution in for all of our reformed brains in here? Uh, It struck me a few weeks ago that we do really good at this. It's all about uh, what Christ has done, what he has accomplished on our behalf, those whom God has chosen to save and bring to himself. And then we look back at stuff that we believe 10, 20 years ago, and we're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, how was I even in the kingdom thinking that? And yet we look at us now and we're like, well, clearly I'm in because look at me now, you know, ah, a, little, a little halo. Uh, and it we, can, we do really good as reformed people when we look at works. We go, nope, salvation is not by works. It's by grace alone. And then we look at somebody who has their theology sort of skewed and sideways. And we want to go, but of course that guy's out. That entire denomination is out. Uh, I think what we think and what we believe is incredibly important and Christ is the one who is standing guard over that. The Holy Spirit is the governor of all those things, which is why when talking about Bill Johnson a little bit, uh, a little bit ago, I tried to make a big deal to go. I actually think he really loves Jesus. There are committed believers who are out there whose theology is so bad. I think it might actually be heretical and yet there's the seed of faith in Christ in there. And just like their bad works won't keep them out of heaven, their bad theology, I don't believe, will keep them out of heaven. Now, let's be careful when we say that, because you can believe in such bad theology that you've missed Christ entirely. And your hope is in a church, in works, in the religion, in something else, and you're not actually trusting in Christ. So uh, who gets to decide that? Jesus. Good Sunday school answer. And, and the true answer right here, uh, our job is to preach Christ to be a compelling witness for him. All right. Good talk. OK. Oh, number four, the application of the achievement uh, to us. When the Holy Spirit awakens us, we see Christ for who he really is and we repent and come to faith in him. When that happened, our sins were forgiven. We went from death to life. We were counted righteous in Christ. It all happened through faith alone. Justification, forgiveness, and eternal life were purchased at the cross, but they became ours by faith when we believed. Where did the faith to believe come from? Jesus. So Paul would say, Where is boasting? Excluded. It's out. It's out entirely. All right, good. Number five, God is the gospel. We must embrace Christ as the gospel. Christ is our good news. Uh, notice the five aspects of the gospel we just outlined. Uh, the gospel is an event. The gospel was an achievement. It, it actually accomplished something. Uh, the free offer of the gospel, the personal application of the gospel for you and I, for our hearts. Uh, personal is important because before the New Testament comes along, there was only corporate salvation. That your salvation was found in the fact that you were part of the people of God. You were an Israelite. You were a Hebrew or you had adopted into that. There really was nothing of a... We talk about personal relationship with God and we use it as if we're dating Jesus. That's not what that means. This means God doesn't just deal with all of the people at your church. God wants to deal with you. That's what's meant by personal relationship. Uh, not you just have cuddle time. Seth.
2: Saved individually, and we're grafted into the Commonwealth of Israel. Does that sound right? Have you heard that argument? We're we'll grafted into the, the vine. Right, but they would argue that the reason that we're saved is because we actually become
0: like Hebrews and Israelites. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the uh, oh gosh, what's what's the name of that? The, it's not New Hebrew. Well. Yeah. Something Jewish restoration, whatever. Uh, what happens is they miss why were the Hebrews oh, yeah. saved? Why were they justified? Okay. It was because they were having faith forward through the sacrament, through the sacrifice in Christ. That this, they were saved for this, and we try and mention this on Sunday repeatedly. They were saved for the, for the same, same reason we're saved Jesus. They hadn't seen him yet, but every, everything was pointing what to that it.
6: Into the line of verse? To
0: of what it That's in the Bible.
7: <laughs> uh, Peter, well, yeah uh, the of abraham and
0: yeah all the way back as dad just mentioned the promise that god is going to give to abraham we're going to see it in genesis here in a little bit where he says in you all the nations will be blessed uh that doesn't mean that all of you are going to be hebrews or sons of abraham it meant that out of the line of abraham was going to come christ and through him for the first time because previous to that the only way to be saved was to be a hebrew what was to be an israelite and now it's salvation as paul's going to say there, there's no jew there's no greek there's no um barbarian it, all are in christ You can look it up. Google it.
7: (laughs) But but the the thing that's being tied in there is that through faith that where Paul is making this argument in Romans that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything. It is in Christ. But in Christ, we as Gentiles become the circumcision. And that becomes important because that ties back and being the seed of Abraham. Yeah.
0: All right. This is super good. And we got to get finished in the next 15 minutes. So we're moving on. All right. What makes the good news good? Uh, having considered the different aspects of the good news of the gospel, remember the central thrust of this lesson. John Piper is going to say, uh, until the gospel event of Good Friday and Easter and the gospel promise of justification and eternal life lead you to behold and embrace God himself as your highest joy, you have not embraced the gospel of God. Isaiah 40, 3-9, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord sorry, Uh, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass. It is like the beauty of a flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with your strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So according to the Old Testament text, what is the central message of the gospel, the good news that is being proclaimed? The answer to that is the good news was the return of the Lord to Zion after Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people went into exile. And In the Lord's return, his glory would be revealed and all flesh would see it. Uh, who could have known, though, that the glory of the Lord would be revealed in a man from Nazareth? One of the disciples said, that's not even possible. Can anything good come from Nazareth? We, we were missing bits and pieces of what was to come. Isaiah prophesies the glory of the Lord would be revealed. But why is this good news? Let's look at Moses and David for that answer. And I, I'm just going to zip through these for the sake of time here. Uh, Exodus 33, 17 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Uh, Moses said, please show me your glory. Uh, Psalm 27, four, by the way, that, that was the verse Seth referenced earlier. Psalm 24, seven, uh, one thing I've asked of the Lord and one thing I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire in his temple. In Psalm 63, one through eight, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Why do these requests and desires of Moses and David instruct us? Well, that's because we see in these passages that the godly desire to see a display of God's glory and beauty, in fact, a revelation of God's glory is the only thing that will satisfy the cravings of the human soul. So God alone satisfies Our souls should thirst for him. Our souls should cling to him. I hope that after hearing that verse earlier, when you hear verses that reference clinging to him, you think about it totally different. So how then does God fulfill the word he spoke to Isaiah and answer the longings of the human heart? Why does the gospel of God concern the man Jesus? John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For now the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In Hebrews 1, 1-3. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact Imprint of his nature, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what do we learn from these passages about the glory of God? Uh, just as 2 corinthians four four through six tells us the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, <coughs> since Jesus is the perfect image of god so let's let 's respond to this just one or two really briefly. Uh, respond to the statement, justification is the heart, but not the highest good of the gospel. Justification, our being made right with God, is the heart, but not highest good of the gospel.
3: Because justification paves the way for reconciliation.
0: Yep. But I think it goes it goes at least another step past that. Why is why is our justification and even our reconciliation with God not the highest good of the gospel?
3: Because it leads to fellowship.
0: Yeah.
7: Highest good of the gospel is, God. God is
0: the gospel. Yeah, we have to keep coming back to that again and again. The the highest good of the gospel is God is putting his own glory on display in saving uh, what John Newton described as worms like us, undeserving people. Uh, justification uh, is desirable. It's glorious. Uh, and yet, until we get to the place where God is the ultimate good and our souls are satisfied in him, uh, we're just glad we're saved and going to heaven. Or, or even we're, we're glad because our sin had separated us from God. Ah, finally, I'm back. It, that's good but that's only that's sort of the B side of the record the A side is it's all about God it's about who he is All right, uh, we kind of touched on this earlier uh, the question the gospel is a way for people to get to heaven uh, it, it's true that uh, God saves and keeps those who belong to him but there again uh, the highest glory in that is that we get to be part of the choir uh, that choir Revelation 4 and 5 it, it's all about God for all of eternity all right, so God's glory. To, What's that?
3: The gospel is a way to get people to heaven. It's blasphemous. It's the way. It's not a way. Yes. <laughs> but it is a no
0: way. <laughs> <laughs> it is the only way yes. to get people yes. to heaven. Yes.
7: It. There's yes. Other
0: ways and there's not right. People would say there's other ways, they just don't work.
7: <laughs> well all paths lead to God but the meeting at the end of the path is quite different
0: yeah there you go alright God's glory in Christ we're going to make it everybody fear not uh, second uh, we're going to fire through this super fast 2 Corinthians 4 1 through 6 therefore having the ministry and the mercy of God Uh, We do not lose heart, but we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, one of my favorite verses, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So is it fair to assume that everything Paul says in this passage is said concerning the gospel? The answer is yes. And other stuff after that, but I'm not gonna read it to you. (laughs) According to this passage, what is the gospel? How is it seen? The gospel is a message in which the light of God's glory is omitted. The gospel is seen when God removes the blindness from our minds, uh, speaking as though it were light into existence where only darkness had been. This is why at the end of probably half of our services, uh, as we pray God's benediction, God's blessing over his people as they leave, uh, we pray may he cause us to be light in the midst of darkness. Mm -hmm. And part of implied in that is may God open the eyes of those in darkness to see the light. So the proclamation of the gospel is what Paul gave the whole uh, gave his whole life to. Or rather God called Paul and appointed him as a unique unique herald of the gospel to the Gentiles. So looking at these passages and I would just commit them to you you can you can take more time to study them, compare them when you get home, 2 Corinthians 4:4 4, 4, uh, one of my verses that resonated since I was in Bible college. Uh, in their case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They, they can't see it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light and the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that that's like like layers in there. That Where did God shine it? He's sh- shown his light in our hearts. What do they see? Not our hearts. They see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Like through us, they see Jesus Christ. X. 26 16 and 18 i have appeared uh, to you for this purpose to anoint you as a servant as a witness to open the gentiles eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of satan to god so how do these uh, how does seeing these passages together provide us with insight into their meaning Uh, we read it we begin to see paul's ministry as one of supernatural power of god at work though we are blinded To God's glory, living under the power of sin and Satan, God opened our eyes. That is the eyes of our heart, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, so that we could see and know God and his glory. His glory is seen in the person of Jesus Christ, God's divine son. The spiritual uh, apprehension of glory is what conversion is uh, as we study further in the next lesson. So we're going to end with a quote from the pipe himself. What we must see is the glory of God in the face of Christ. Why? Because that is what the gospel is. The gospel is not just historical events. Christ died, was buried, and rose. The gospel is good news. What we do not see is the divisive good in the good news if we do not see in all the events the glory of God, who is the image of God. Notice carefully the use of the word gospel in verse 4. It is the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is the gospel. The glory of Christ seen and savored in the work of redemption is good news. This is the highest and best and final good and makes all the other good things promised in the gospel good. Justification is good news because it makes us stand accepted by the one whose glory we want to see, to see and savor above all things. Forgiveness is good news because it cancels all the sin that keeps me from seeing and enjoying the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Removal of wrath and salvation from hell are good news because now in my escape from eternal misery, I find eternal pleasure beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. Eternal life is good news because this eternal life, Jesus said, that they may know me and him who sent me. Freedom from pain and sickness and conflict are good news because in my freedom from pain, I am no longer distracted from the fullest enjoyment of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. In other words, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 6 tells us what the highest, best, ultimate good of the good news is, the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We made it. All right. We'll take questions in just a second, but let's just pray because that's that is a high and lofty truth that we cannot just give assent to because we're sitting in this class, even in that we ask the Holy Spirit to continue to open our eyes. So, God, we're just praying that for ourselves right now. We thank you, oh God, that you have opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ. And yet, Lord, it feels like those who awaken after a long night and their eyes are still stuck together and and they're open and we can see. And yet we're still just sort of rubbing at them, trying to get it to come into focus. We pray even tonight, oh God, would you open our eyes even more to see and treasure Christ that you might be supremely glorified as we treasure you above all things. Lord, we, we ask that of you yesterday and we pray it today. We ask of it tomorrow in a new and fresh way because we know that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. And so we pray even deeper, let us see the preciousness, the worth, the value, the supremacy of your Son. Let his glory be put on display in our lives. Because we have seen him, because we have known him, let us live as those with passion to make him known, we pray. For his namesake, that he might be worshipped above all others. Amen.